0: While The Gist is dedicated to explicit content, today, we have left the profane fields to lay fallow. Thursday, July 14th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist, I'm Mike Peska. Negotiations around the war in Ukraine have experienced a breakthrough, not about stopping the war, but about stopping what had been stopping grain from getting from Ukraine countries that rely on shipments. DW News has more.
1: After hours of negotiation in Istanbul, Turkey's defense minister announced Ukraine and Russia had agreed to allow grain shipments through the Black Sea.
0: It's not hard to understand the problem, right? The war in Ukraine includes the seaports around Odessa. They're under siege. In the sea, they are mined very hard to ship out the grain. Now, Al Jazeera provided this more in-depth explainer.
1: Let's talk about why the war in Ukraine is causing a global food crisis.
0: I get the inclination to gussy up the story with beats and music. The problem is I think they picked the wrong music. Clearly, the most succinct way to convey this news is to say... Ukraine's refrained from shipping out its grain. That's right, but why? The war campaigns contain the grain in Ukraine. And what's the goal of most of the world? Obtaining grain that's mainly from Ukrainians But Russia says it's blocking ships because of weapon smuggling A strange refrain to explain exported grain That does make sense But what about rich Middle Eastern countries? Do they need grain by ship? Bahrain obtains Ukrainian grain by plane That's not true. Why are you saying that? My brain is sprained, thus driving me insane. What's it like living with that? The pain, the pain. How do you treat that? Cocaine, cocaine. Okay. I know, for those of you who hate my singing Philistines all, this must have been especially grueling, but I think it's worth it. To elucidate a not very hard to understand concept, we had to revert to a musical number. Maybe next time I will use, say, paragraphs and words. Now, wouldn't that be loverly? On the show today, it's a squeal. Wait, did I say squeal? Not spiel? Whoops. A verbal gaff, which either means a slip of the tongue or it's a portal to the soul. But first... Linda Villarosa joins us to talk about the issue of racism in the U.S. healthcare system, an issue that she has lived and then covered throughout her life. In her new book, Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation, she takes us from her start at Essence Magazine in the 80s to the newest thinking about racial disparities in health outcomes. Linda Villarosa, up next. (laughs) Linda Villarosa is the author of Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and on the Health of Our Nation. She has been reporting this issue, but also living this issue essentially all her life. And the journey that she's taken reflects where I I would say the vanguard of thought and black thought has been on these issues for decades and decades. So her awakening or her intellectual journey is sort of where the thinking is on what is causing such problems as higher black women, infant mortality, higher maternal mortality, and so many other health outcomes with disparate impacts. Linda, welcome to The Gist.
1: Thank you, glad to be here.
0: So take me back to when you were an editor and a writer at Essence, which is a really important uh, institution in black America. And what did you and that magazine think was the absolute right thing to do to tell your readers how to live healthfully in America?
1: Well, at that time, and you know, to some extent now, it was all about individual behavior change, and so the idea was: we see that there's there are these racial health disparities in America. Why do black people have such poor health outcomes? And what we did, at essence, on in not just health but also wealth and all other parenting, all other areas, was to say. We have access to individual black w- women, 1 million subscribers and call it another 7 million who read it at the beauty shop or they trade it among their family members. So let's just change their individual behavior through education because we know this group of black women are strivers and that'll lift the whole race's health outcomes and wealth and you know parenting outcomes, all kinds of things. And that's what we did. And that's what I subscribed to. I was very all in with that. I was like every month, like, what is the article I need to write or edit that tells black women how to live better, how to live healthier, and how to help their family members and friends and community do the
0: same. Yeah, and the idea wasn't that America was a fair place to all people. The idea was more given that this is the background condition and that we can't really change it. Here are the empowering things that you can do as whatever the talented 10th or just however you are to live your lives the best. Is that about right? Exactly. Yeah.
1: I would say the word empowerment that you just used is key. That's what I mean, I would say that all the time. It's like if I can just empower people to live better, things will change. And it's sort of like whatever the saying is, um, as the water lifts, all boats rise. And that's what the that's what we were thinking.
0: Right, right, right. And it wasn't like we've looked at the tidal conditions and they are low and there's no way that they're going to rise by themselves. So, you know, here's how you could best position your boat, your particular craft on this ocean. So do you think that you were actually, by doing that and helping people and doing the best that you could do and drawing from the best of the science at the time, do you think you were actually hurting your readers?
1: I don't think so. And I actually think that all of the advice that we were offering still valid. It is important for individual people to take good care of themselves. And all of that, whether it was about eating, exercise, um, prenatal health, all of that stuff was really important. But now I realize that isn't the
0: only thing. Was there one or two accounts, studies, changes in scientific consensus that really was an eye-opening moment for you?
1: I think it was very gradual. And I think I'm like a lot of people, it's hard to change your thinking. It is difficult. It's difficult if you think, if you, you know, me, I've grown up as a striver and, you know, was very into my own individual behavior and education was everything in my family. Then I get to essence where that I fit in perfectly there. So it took me a minute to sort of shift and gradual shift. I think one of the first things, the most important thing for me really was to go to public health school because I hadn't been exposed to that. I was kind of self taught as a health editor. And um, you know, just really interested in these topics, but I didn't have any educational background. So when I started understanding the systemic and institutional issues, you know, I started to shift, but not totally. I was just thinking,
0: hmm, I'm glad to know this. This is really important. Right, there was a study that showed at the time that the life expectancy of black men in Harlem was lower than the life expectancy of men in Bangladesh. That was eye-opening. There was a couple of major reports that looked at the health of black women. And that was eye-opening. And the accumulation of evidence was that this isn't just about class. In fact, maybe it's not mostly about class. Um, Using class as a proxy for race is as much a detriment to trying to find the solution as being open to all interpretations. And eventually, well, you tell me. You landed to where you are now, which is where in terms of taking into account the various factors that explain health disparities with African American women and just African Americans in general.
1: I think it's threefold and you know the first is that something happens to us in the healthcare system itself where you know there is very well documented, long standing discrimination in the healthcare system for Black people and other people of color, but especially for Black people as we've been going through it longer since, you know, basically 1619. So that's 400 years of discrimination in the healthcare system itself. The second is the toll discrimination can take on individual people's bodies. And that is through the, um, I look at it, uh, I understand it most clearly through the, concept of weathering, the idea that the lived experience of being Black and often a woman in America harms the body. And then the third is that our communities are simply less healthful. And we live in, we as Black people and other people of color, but again, especially Black people, live in communities that have been poisoned by air and water pollution, that where they're unsafe, where the healthcare facilities aren't as good, where there are often food deserts or lack affordable, healthy food and safe places,
0: safe green space to exercise. Let's just take um, infant mortality or maternal mortality and Black women, how Much worse is it, according to the latest statistics.
1: So let's take maternal mortality because it really is the worst. And um, we're, America itself, not Black America, but America in general is the only wealthy country where the number of women who die or almost die related to pregnancy and childbirth is rising, has continued to rise. We are the country where Black women are three to four times more likely to die or almost die having a baby. And we are also the country where education is not protective. So a black woman with a master's degree or some kind of other degree like that, so highly educated, is more likely to have a problem related to pregnancy and childbirth than a white woman with an eighth grade education.
0: But in my interviews with William Darity and others, he does point out that a black woman with a college education has significantly less wealth than a white high school dropout, which is... Two things. One, it in no way rebuts the idea that we live in a racist society. It confirms it. But two, that woman who is maybe uh, more vulnerable, the the um, college or advanced degree holding black woman who is more vulnerable uh, when birthing, She's not necessarily wealthier than the eighth grade educated white woman.
1: But I don't think wealth is exactly the best um, measure. So some people have high incomes, um, but they don't have family wealth. They don't have accumulated accumulated wealth. They may not have the kinds of passing along a home or home ownership in America, but they right. still have enough right. money and education and education and insurance to be able to have, a, you know, a positive experience having a baby. I think the other thing is the anecdotal evidence. I'm sort of struck by it more and more. Um, I mean, I started when I was working on my story about maternal and infant mortality. Serena Williams had a terrible experience in the healthcare system that she clearly could afford if she couldn't afford it. Her husband <laughs> could have afforded it. And so, but, you know, why was she not listened to? Why did that happen to her? One, but I just every day I hear about another person in, who has some kind of problem, black black birthing person who has some kind of problem, including the two people who who reviewed my book under the skin for the New York Times book review and the Washington Post. So it is not that common for someone to have a long, terrible personal experience while birthing to share it in a book review. And I was Mm -hmm. struck by these two people, highly educated, really talented writers, who uh, had heartbreaking experiences. I just talked to a friend who is a highly educated person, wealthy, who told me about just being treated so badly when having a miscarriage by the EMS people, who said, what drugs are you on? (laughs) And that was the first thing that they asked her when she was suffering. And then I just talked to a college president who's a physician. And again, a terrible birth story. And I hear these every day. And at some point, you know, I love evidence. I love numbers. But at some point, these pile up of anecdotes, starting with Serena Williams, have to add up to also another kind of evidence.
0: On the issue of weathering, um, why don't you explain that? And then if I can, I have a couple questions about it.
1: So, weathering is the idea that Black people have, and you know anyone who has has to deal with marginalization or discrimination, the um, the act of surviving it creates a kind of premature aging of the body. Every time you reach a kind of a fight or flight syndrome because you get uh, stressed out by. You know, in this case, discrimination, microaggressions at best, macroaggressions at worst, your heart rate goes up, your cortisol levels rise your other stress hormones, your uh, blood pressure goes up. And this this makes sense if you are doing fight or flight, but if you're doing it every day or, you know, several times a week, it weathers the body and creates a kind of premature aging by raising your allostatic load. But when...
0: I look at Hispanics or when you look at the statistics, Hispanics have a higher life expectancy than white people. Hispanics, uh, Latinas are less likely to die within a year or at childbirth than white people. And aren't they, I'm not saying as much as black people, but they're of course more subject to microaggressions and systemic racism than a white person, the majority person would be in this culture. And I often wonder how those two facts square. I don't know if you've thought about it, or what do you think the explanation could be?
1: Well, I think it's twofold. And one thing about weathering, as you know, it's wonderful when you have a scientist who's also a poet. So weathering is the idea that the way a storm destroys a house. And so it knocks the paint off it, you know, the shingles fly off the windows break but a house also weathers the storm through kinship through community through love and through taking care of each other so i like that um for latinx people who have also not been in this country as long so if black people have been dealing with this having our bodies tortured commodified forced labor in all the ways that double meaning means it's just been longer in this country. We've had our families broken up. We don't have the same we don't always have the same advantages if we live in communities that have had long term harm to them. Um, you know, I could start with redlining in the thirties, but I think it goes back further. And so I think we've just had have, have both been weathered and weathered the storm
0: longer. Of course, some Hispanic communities way predate any any version of uh non hemispheric inhabitants in our country but yes if but you if you at-
1: also look at um native americans which have not been you know not been studied as well by me <laughs> especially but that is in, you know they've been here the longest and they've had so much harm and if you look at their health outcomes they're equal, you know they're often equal sometimes worse um but in the same vein of what happens to black folks
0: Yeah, that is true. One of my theories is that whatever the effect of, if you want to call it microaggressions or weathering, it's quite plausible that Black and Indigenous people have just had it worse, like much, much worse. And that could explain many of the differences. But I also think that if you look at how the racism, systemic racism, microaggressions show up in other empirical measures, like, as you know, wealth, obesity, actual measured alcohol use, not actually uh, smoking, I found out when I looked at maternal mortality, it's higher in the Black community. And that's not separate from racism. That's also, you know, many of these things are just a reaction to stress. But what I'm saying is maybe it's not the stress causes birthing people to have bad outcomes. Maybe it's that the stress causes the Black community to be in a position, an empirically measurable position to have worse outcomes with things such as, you know, a much higher BMI.
1: I completely agree with you. And I think that is the thing that we've known already. And so that's why this individual behavior change has been the way to um, sort of attack the problem to say, okay, we see that, you know, black people in America have higher levels of obesity um, and, you know things like that. We have more diabetes, we have, we don't have more smoking, we don't have more alcohol, but we do have, you know, other, just exactly what you're saying that could be caused, but tied to stress. But that's what we've been working on. For, and when I was at Essence, all those things, don't smoke, don't drink, you know, exercise, take care of yourself, here's how to lose weight. That didn't work you know, very well to change the health status. It's still terrible. But what has been less well acknowledged is the is the three things that I talked to you about is what has happened to our communities and how it affects our bodies, including pollution. And, you know, this whole idea of weathering and how that affects the body, as well as discrimination in the healthcare system. All of that has been less well looked at, but even worse, less even when it's looked at and evidence, you know, there's, it's based on evidence, it hasn't been acknowledged, and there haven't been as many solutions to attack it, to to attack these problems.
0: So weathering is, and especially the cortisol levels are just fascinating to me. And I looked up uh, Geronimus's studies, I also looked at macro studies, which really acknowledge over many other researchers besides her, that there definitely is a correlation, there's something to it. But as far as you understand, from turning it into, say, theory, and just either maybe not fact, because that's not how these things work, but widely accepted, acknowledged theory based on irrefutable evidence rather than, you know, a poetic way of understanding this phenomenon. How far away is it? Do you think within 10 years, almost all, the entire health community will think of weathering like they do uh, the idea of just stress in general and it won't be controversial at all?
1: I think that it's moving rapidly toward that. I saw Dr. Geronimus um, right at the beginning of COVID, and when I first interviewed her in like 2017, she was, you know, I don't think she'd been talked to very much. She was very friendly on the phone. We were on the phone for hours. And I'm thinking, hmm, I'm just going to remind her <laughs> I'm with the New York Times um, because she's seeming kind of casual. And I realized she doesn't get listened to very much. And, you know, at least she wasn't attacked like she used to be. But now she's much more mainstreamed. But, um, you know, I think that things have definitely shifted in the direct- because and. I believe in all the things. I think that in these problems that we have around racial health disparities and poor health outcomes, we have to attack the problem in all ways including individual behavior. But I'm just saying, we have to also focus more on these other three things that I've talked about than we have in the past. And the more we do that, we can come up with a full-throated solution to these problems and really see something shift because it really hasn't shifted much at all. Um, since,
0: you know, for centuries. And tomorrow we will be back with Linda Villarosa to get much more in depth about maternal mortality statistics and experience. It is a topic I have covered at least half a dozen times on The Gist. And I ask Villarosa to square some of the confounding and unexpected facts around the generally true narrative that Black women have much worse outcomes than whites. That is tomorrow with Linda Villarosa, author of Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and the Health of Our Nation. And now the spiel. Joe Biden tripped over a word today and caught himself, not an unusual occurrence, but because the words were around one of the great tragedies or horrors of world history, the mistake was treated as world shaking. I will once more return to the hollow ground of Yad Vashem to honor six million Jewish lives who were stolen in the genocide and continue, which we must do every, every day, continue to bear witness. To keep alive the truth and honor of the Holocaust, horror of the Holocaust, honor those we lost. If Biden didn't make a mistake like this in almost every speech, it would be almost literally nothing, but it's not nothing. Without even asserting that his verbal slips indicate mental slippage, and they might, it is undeniable that his advisors are clearly reluctant to put him in front of the media because, in part, of these stumbles. Speaking clearly and forcefully is one of the tools a president uses to earn trust and prestige and to advance his agenda. For Joe Biden, this is a dulled tool at best. I'm in the media, you're listening to the media. We all experience politics through media. So we tend to overemphasize the importance of media. But when it comes to the presidency, the bully pulpit is extremely important. And Biden's pulpit is flaking apart, rotting through day by day. And of course, the media, the type of media, the corner of the media that made the most of the gaffe, that was conservative media who are apt to interpret Biden's verbal stumbles least charitably and have woven them into a narrative that's practically guaranteed to get new data points every day. If Biden's pulpit is crumbling, their edifice of a tongue-tied president is gaining strength. It's the Tower of Babel. If you don't spend time in right-wing media, you may be vaguely aware that Biden often stumbles verbally. They make sure you're acutely aware. And of course, the verbal gaffes are said to indicate decline. Then after decline comes disqualification. The hard part for the media inclined to support Biden is that they made similar accusations under the past two Republican presidents. When Donald Trump misspoke, it often wasn't treated as a misspeak. It was said to be an indication of mental incompetence. So Biden said honor, quickly catches himself, and says horror. No big deal, right? But is that different when Trump said, They work two jobs and sometimes three jobs. They sacrifice every day for the furniture and future of their children. Or this one, as commented upon by Chris Hayes. The president of the Virgin Islands. What he meant to say was the governor of the Virgin Islands corrected in the official transcript there in brackets, because of course the president of the U.S. Virgin Islands is the president of the United States, Donald Trump himself. Well, liberal critics of Trump, not Chris there, to be fair, but many and frequently asserted that Trump's verbal miscues were meaningful signs of his precarious mental state. With Biden's, the implication is it's his intelligence. With Trump, it was his sanity, but also his intelligence. Critics would reach for the 25th amendment with every botched word up to including the word word. Our hope is a word and world of proud, independent nations. Some flubs are flubs. Some flubs indicate something worse. Reagan's gaffes grew as he aged, and we know now that the early stages of dementia had set in by the last years of his presidency. George W. Bush was so given to misspeaking that it was given a name, Bushisms, which sold a few books. I think they misunderstood the will and determination of the Commander-in-Chief, too. I do remember at the time, a very left-leaning professor named Mark Crispin Miller wrote his own book called The Bush Dyslexicon. George W. Bush is so illiterate as to turn completely incoherent when he speaks without a script, said the blurb of that book. In that book, Crispin Miller saw patterns in the noise of Bush's noise. He concluded that Bush's gaffes were mostly about topics that made him uncomfortable, like race and history. Crispin Miller said that when Bush was quote, simply making threats, he was always pretty clear. But you know, I remember when George W. Bush was president, and I remember hearing Mark Crispin Miller's theory, and I thought it just wasn't the case. Bush often misspoke in the martial context as well. The number one Bushism of all time, according to Jacob Weisberg, who wrote the book on them or the books, was, quote, Our enemies are innovative and resourceful, and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people, and neither do we. Mark Crispin Miller, by the way, is a still tenured professor at NYU, but they essentially keep him chained to a post in the basement after he began suggesting the Bush administration allowed 9-11 to happen for political gain. He, by the way, uh, recommended the contents of the book Nobody Died at Sandy Hook, not because he necessarily subscribed to the entire theory, but as he told interviewer Matt Taibbi, quote, there's some interesting research on Sandy Hook that's troubling and very challenging, and I dismissed it out of hand until I read it, meaning the book, and I have to say there's something to it. Crispin Miller also got interested in the connections between vaccines and autism. In other words, as with maybe Bush's verbiage, he was seeing patterns when there were none. I believe something similar goes on when presidents mumble and stumble. It takes on a greater meaning, even diagnostic significance. If you're defending Biden's gaffes, however, as entirely unindicative of brain function or not meaningful enough to really be worried, or just something that Bush's enemies say to hurt him, you do undercut your point if you said the exact opposite about Donald Trump. And that holds true in the other direction. Here's Fox News medical contributor Dr. Mark Siegel speaking about then-President Trump. I think the media is doing a real disservice here to people with real mental right. illness and real cognitive issues and real dementia by targeting the president and making it seem like it's a diminishment of and some I know kind. You have- and here is Dr. Mark Siegel, this time speaking about our current president. But what about the real question about cognition, about sharpness to be president?
1: And I think that that's an issue of great concern here. And I'm not his doctor, and I've never examined him, but I'm not the only one that's raising this question about him not having press conferences, about how just yesterday he was calling Vice President Harris, President Harris?
0: I mean, that could, he's done that several times. That could be a Freudian slip, or it could be a, something worse, something neurologic, something cognitive. Doctor, heal thy own mental failings. We want a commander-in-chief in in command of his words, and when verbal acuity has fallen off, it is not a sign of worsening skills, not necessarily. But it is a clear indication that one skill, one very important skill, communication, isn't where it needs to be. If you're an animosity-filled critic, maybe this is disqualifying. But if you're just an honest with yourself supporter, you gotta admit it is worrying. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the just assistant producer, Joel Patterson is the just senior producer, Michelle Pasca is COO of Peachfish Productions. I want to apologize because yesterday we were talking about coos and John Bolton's coos and him saying he's done coos and there Michelle is a COO pronounced coo and we didn't make a joke. One doesn't have to be. Brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that as somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat. Yeah. Not here, but, you know, other places. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Advertise Cast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. And thanks for listening.